Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 134 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I'm talking to Barry Zwarstein, a combat veteran of the Rhodesian Bush War in modern-day Zimbabwe, who is now a mental health professional for Australian veterans. That which we have in common is so much greater than our differences. Numbers of people I'm sitting with at the moment are not presenting with issues from operations. Numbers of the Special Force guys go, I don't have a problem with what I did. They've integrated. But what they do have is the problem around loss of tribe, identity, guilt, grief. Grief's another big one, major. Almost every veteran I've sat with, underlying at the deepest part of themselves is grief. Grief about loss of who they were, even grief about mates that were lost. Not trauma, but grief. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, for longtime listeners, you know that uh, I don't necessarily like just focusing on um, veteran mental health, even, and really want to look at wellness. Uh, but also I like to, to bring audience members a, a wider view of veteran mental health in maybe perhaps our coalition partners and other veterans that have served. And I'm really excited about today's guest, Barry Zwerstein, um, who brings a, a couple of different unique, uh, points of view on combat veterans and on psychology like he like me he is a mental health professional um, who was also a combat veteran and uh, we'll definitely get into his story barry welcome to the show yeah thanks and uh, many thanks also for taking the time to um, bring me into your show it's much appreciated uh yes i think as as we were communicating before i've been looking for um an Australian mental health professional, and, and we'll definitely get into you're not Australian as, as a, uh, a native born, but, but, um, looking at, um, 
I've had a, a British veteran on my show. I have a Canadian mental health professional yeah. who is a, a veteran coming on the show. And, and, and it really strikes me the similarities between, um, veterans across the world, uh, especially combat veterans across the world. Before we get into that, though, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a bit about yourself. Um, well, in a nutshell, I was born in what was called Southern Rhodesia in 1953. Um, first generation born. Um, completed my schooling there, went to university, spent many years um, training as a teacher, <laughs> which really was a big mistake. Um, wandered around the world, um, spent time in England and Israel, um, came to Australia in 1980, but eventually went back to South Africa and requalified in psychology. And when I arrived back in Australia in 2000 as a citizen, um, I then approached veteran services and discovered that they had just got permission to contract external psychologists with a, what was then called the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Services, which is now called Open Arms. And so for the past um, 16, 17 years, I've had a very exciting, dynamic journey with um, working with veterans. So moved around through lots of professions, lots of countries, um, but I've arrived at a place where I do the two things I love. I work in a school during the day as a psychologist and head of learning support in second languages. And in the evening, I contract with open arms and have seen people from World War II to current serving and had the most incredible experiences sitting with extraordinary human beings. And, and this is, um, it would be interesting for me to hear how the Australian Vietnam veterans were received um, as they returned home compared to, I'm sure, as you're familiar with how um, U.S. Vietnam veterans were received. Of course, um, uh, there were Australian veterans in Vietnam uh, or Australian service members in Vietnam yeah, at, yeah, at, at yeah. smaller numbers. But but what was that like as as you began as a mental health professional, PTSD was just becoming a thing? Yeah, look, PTSD was still yeah just becoming a thing. I think the modalities of working with them were still quite narrow. I mean, 16 years later, and the understanding around neuroplasticity, the brain, more body-up approaches, and by that I mean we start to look at trauma within the body and the modalities around brain and body-based tools that can support veterans. A lot of that just simply wasn't present many years ago. So the advances of um, tools and techniques and understandings around what trauma means is now very different, which means what you would have to take months and months sitting with um, a veteran to get to and possibly not even get there because a lot of trauma is so encapsulated in the back of the brain. Now we can create very quick and immediate shifts by doing very simple things. So it's a very different, what I call territory, in terms of the healing and the understanding of um, combat or operational trauma. Um, the veterans, certainly the, the Vietnam veterans, consistent with yours, came back to Australia and didn't get a very good reception. And that has its own impact. And I guess it's also quite consistent with my generation from the 60s up to the sort of beginning of the 80s from the Rhodesian Bush War, where um, we have never had any services available. So we even one step further along the line of um, zero support. And, you know, in my case, after um, being fully operational for seven months in the bush war um, three weeks later i was at university and didn't have a clue why um, i was experiencing symptomatology which is you know i don't get headaches and why am i getting body aches and pains and why am i waking up 20 times a night 
So uh, we were a bit of a lost generation, the Vietnam era and my era. Um, but at the same time, we're still looking at generations of veterans who are being lost and not so much being lost by the level of support they receive, but being lost by the complexities of the transitioning process, which I still don't think many organizations are getting to. It's not just as simple as transitioning into work positions. It's what about the transitioning and the complexities and the challenges around loss of identity, loss of tribe, loss of self, um, guilt. Um, and a big one, which is never really talked about, was I didn't feel good enough. And I, and I see that a lot. But they don't, veterans don't often talk about I don't feel good enough. And the being good enough is often, oh, I'm not a good enough veteran. I have no right to call myself a combat veteran because I have not killed. Well, you know, that one's quite haunting for guys and women because it inhibits them from standing in who they are as veterans. And a lot of my work with veterans is we get to this. And the fact that you are in territory is okay. Within the territory, there are various depths that one can go, and you don't often have a choice about that. There are many extremely well-qualified combat veterans who've never had an opportunity to be deployed. And so a lot of it is revisioning and reforming sense of identity. So it's a very complex process. As I often say, the transitioning process is now the new operational front um, for veterans. And we need to understand it in a lot more of its complexity. See, and this is why I really appreciate um, getting, um, I want to say an alternative point of view, but it is a very similar point of view because that's exactly what many veterans are, are experiencing here in the U.S. Um, is that uh, e even as you said that you spent seven months uh, in, in an operational environment and then two weeks later you were in a college class, um, it's very much the same thing. Um, uh, two weeks after I was um, uh, in the last patrol in Afghanistan, um, I was helping my brother-in-law build a deck in Tennessee. And it was just this yeah. very rapid, you know, you know, I was still in, in literally in many ways thinking about the, the people that we just left. They took over from us. I had connection to them. I was very concerned. I was, sure. I was literally thinking, you know, they should be on the route at this time. Um, and my mind sure. was in two different places. Um, and to yeah. hear that, that in your experience in the seventies was the same experience that I had in 2009, which is the same experience that my father had in Vietnam. And, and as you said, the veterans today, this transition process, yeah. it's not a matter of just leaving the military. As you said, no. it's a changing the identity. It's a massive change in the identity. And I mean, I think what came to me uh, a while ago was I often use the phrase, we need to bring our warrior back to our civilian and integrate the two. Because for me, it's not just about leaving the warrior behind. And a lot of my work is why leave that part of yourself behind? Because there's a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of strength, there's a lot of operational intelligence that is easily translated into civilian life. And I, and I often say that the combination of the veteran and the civilian or the warrior and civilian actually makes a better human being. And so that's also a lot of my work um, with the guys, that we don't have to leave ourselves behind. We have to bring ourselves into the present, but in a way which demands adjustment and adaptation. But unless we know the territory, how do we do it? It's like sending, it's like going out on a patrol with no map, with no sense of what territory you need to cover. It's like going into battle without knowing where your arcs of fire are. It's going to be chaos. Yet why haven't we 
clearly define the complexities of transitioning territory and find ways to identify where people are in the various aspects of their territory so we know what to target and resolve. And and that's a, a lot of the challenges it's left to veterans to maybe figure that out on their on their own uh, to to figure out yeah. their own territory um and and not connect Completely. with with mental health professionals like you and I. Uh, you had mentioned earlier about this idea with with Australian veterans um, and, and guilt, yeah. and I'm not good enough. And um, I'd heard yeah. this actually. We had a, a Dr. Ed Tick was on the show, and he said that in Australia, oh, yeah. not yeah. not all service members consider themselves veterans. Not all former service members consider themselves veterans. Yes. Only those that were deployed to combat consider themselves yes. or are considered veterans. Um, while those yeah. who didn't deploy to combat or just former service members. There's, there's a distinction there. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, I think it has various layers. So, so the one is operational and involved in many contacts, um, operational involved in contacts and visibly um, having an experience of killing someone. The other one is not, is being in an operational zone, but having very little compact, con- um, very little um, contacts but maybe being involved in an administrative sector. So it goes in various levels. And, and I think the thing we always have to watch out for is the concept of shame. Mm-hmm. Because when we don't feel good enough, we feel shamed. And that shame can haunt you till, till your dying day. And so I think it's how do we level the field that, you know, as a, as a Rhodesian officer once said to me, the fact that you put foot in the territory makes us all brothers. And I think when we start to differentiate in the tribe as to who are the brothers and who are not the brothers, you know, that leaves a sense of disconnection, so loss of tribe, but it also leaves a sense of shame in terms of never having done what you need to do to be good enough. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of levels of um, experience within the territory and how we define what makes a warrior a warrior within that. And, and I think in, in some ways, um, it can be that way in the military, in the U.S. military. You know, you have the combat arms, um, mm-hmm. versus those that, that weren't, you know, specifically in the combat arms, uh, which I wasn't. Mm-hmm. However, I, you know, participated in numerous, uh, contacts and firefights. And, and so it, it can be, uh, sort of, um, it can be leveling here. I don't, I, I think everyone, whether they served in combat or not in the U.S., considers themselves a veteran. But you're right. I do have those veterans who didn't serve in combat who question their quote unquote veteranness. Um, something else you said, and, and this is something that I really appreciate. You said that, uh, if you set foot in the territory that you're my brother, this is one thing that I've recognized in, in communicating with you and others. Often those of us who are combat veterans, regardless of nationality, often have more in common with our coalition brothers and sisters who served than our neighbors who didn't. Um, and, and so the fact that you set foot in the territory in Rhodesia and I set foot in the territory in Iraq and Afghanistan makes us a, a, a warrior bond internationally. Um, Correct. Com- and, and maybe separates us from our neighbors who didn't serve. Um, yeah, look, there is. There's definitely a line between those. So in my country, um, military service was compulsory in the 60s and the 70s. So if you didn't go in, you could not get back into your country. So there were the, those that chose not to serve. Now, there is a line, but it's like there are lines in many things in our lives. They're, they're different tribes, different species. 
So there's the warrior tribe and there's the civilian tribe. And, and there is, there is a massive difference. Um, and I think within the warrior tribe, there is an experience that transcends time. I mean, the brotherhood, I sit when I have had the pleasure of sitting with from World War II to Vietnam, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, whether the guys I've sat with are special force, SAS commandos, it doesn't matter. There's a brotherhood because there's a shared experience of being in the territory of being in the tribe. And, and that is, there's, there's something unique that doesn't, that separates, I think, us out from civilians. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. It's just a statement of experience. And, you know, even in my case, my private practice outside of my school is solely based on referrals from open arms. I only work with veterans. And, and, you know, the question is why? Well, it's not as simple as just my expertise, but I sit with men and women that there is an understanding. They, they change my life. I change their lives. I find it a lot more complex to work with civilians because I understand the people I sit with intuitively. So, yeah, there's a difference. And aren't differences amazing? They're wonderful. So, yeah, you're right. Um, There's a difference. (laughs) And I appreciate that. As I was going through my uh, training as a professional counselor, I was working with an organization, and and they said, we have a client for you, and it's a 16-year-old boy. I was like, I don't think so, right? You give me a a three-war combat vet all day long, but I don't do teenagers, right? And there's this idea of – I mean, and and obviously, I was – like you, I was focused on – uh, working with veterans because it's, it's, it's a necessary, but it's also, it's familiar. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested to hear maybe some of the differences in your experience. There are obviously similarities between veterans of certain eras. Um, but as yeah. you're starting to see, um, veterans from the current era conflicts, are there some differences between, um, these veterans and maybe the Vietnam and World War II veterans you saw? Um, Look, I think the difference is the kind of war that's been fought today. It has a lot of um, protocols around how you engage and don't engage. In my time, um, the protocols were fairly thin on the ground. I mean, we are aware that in you know many aspects of those fun- serving in the Rhodesian Bush War, um, it was a very harsh and it was a very violent war. Um, where I don't think a lot of those protocols existed. They just went there. You were fighting a war. You did what you had to do. You became as bad as the enemy became in many ways. I think a lot of veterans today struggle um, with the protocols and the restrictions around engagement, and that itself can have an impact where you are are in a situation where you cannot respond. You know, there's a classic case – Um, where a number of um, men responded in a situation and then ended up um, with accusations around um, manslaughter because innocents were involved. The other thing I often find is current veterans, I even had a, a number of veterans talk to me about just the gear that you wear nowadays. Even that is a lot more demanding. Even that inhibits speed of movement. Um, so, you know, my time, shorts, vests, <laughs> camo scarf around your head, you know, straight out the movies, but not the movies. We could move lightly. We could move fast. There were no inhibitions. What you had to do, you did. So I think war today is a lot more complex. Um, and perhaps to a large extent, it's got positive aspects and that 
a lot of people who may have died a long time ago don't because their protocols around engagement. But that also comes with impacts. Outside of that, I must admit, the territory is the territory. You know, contacts still have the same sounds, maybe different weapons. Dirt still smells like dirt. Blood smells like blood and death smells like death. And so the dressing around it may be different, but at its core, we're all in the same territory. We're all in the same tribe. You know, I appreciate that. And, and of course, and in, in as you said, um, you know, uh, maybe before we became as bad as the enemy, which has its own psychological impacts and the guilt and shame that goes along with yes. that. Um, yes. Whereas the restrictions that were placed, and I experienced this just as, as much as, as any veteran is, and we called these our rules of engagement, where um, it, literally I, as a, as a sergeant first class, which is a in the great scheme of things, relatively junior, yeah. um, had a squadron commander coming on my radio net telling me which to fire and which not to fire. And, and I'm like, I'm here and you're not in, in a much more respectful way. But this idea yes. of that, that can lead to a, a level of, you know, one arm tied behind my back or, or, yes. um, you know, yes. a, a feeling of helplessness, which again comes with a different type of guilt and shame. Yeah. So on your side, you talk about the feeling of helplessness on my side, we're talking about a generation of men in their mid-60s now who may have killed children, who may have killed women, and some of whom may have engaged in things that today there might be severe repercussions around. But a lot of we have a lot of middle-aged people now in various um, units who are struggling with incredible moral guilt and um, moral injury. And, uh, you know, what was brought home to me was talking to a mate of mine, a Rhodesian um, war veteran, who mentioned a very elite soldier in one of our special force units who, who a short while ago um, uh, committed suicide. And I have no doubt that that suicide was based on the guilt of a moral injury. So, I don't know. I mean, I think both sides, different stories, same impacts. Helplessness, guilt, you know, different words, they both carry weight. Right. And, 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 and I recognize that it's, it's the same type of moral injury in this, and to say that, you know, I, I could have done something to maybe, um, yeah. you know, stop something and, and I wasn't allowed to because of mine. And, and that becomes a, a betrayal of, Correct. of, you know, my, my superiors. Now you mentioned, um, and, and obviously, um, you know, tragically your, your friend took his own life. Um, I'm interested to hear about, we, we of course have a significant veteran suicide epidemic in the U.S. Um, we've heard the same thing in, in the U.K. Um, what is it like in, in Australia? Well, look, veterans are coming back and they are suiciding. They are. It's a, it's a major concern. It's, it's a major concern all around the world. And, you know, I think there, there's two aspects here. The one is, the impact of operations, but then the other one is um, what I what I still define as a moral injury is when a lot of veterans come back, the transitioning process and the support from the organisations that are meant to facilitate healing um, don't work, and that is what I define as a moral injury where the organisations that are meant to support you. We have veterans left homeless and starving and on the streets. And also the process they have to go through to get the support they need can be, some, can be so complex that it actually becomes traumatizing. 
So there are many veterans that come back from operations, not necessarily with PTSD, but adjustment issues. And then that adjustment process, the organization set up for them, fail them. And I think that's another contributor to the suicide rate that we are seeing. I don't think it's viable or, 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 or probable that we link it all to combat trauma or even to prior to engaging in the military, numbers of people may have come from challenging childhoods. We need to take responsibility for what is happening now and what is not happening now. Yes, this idea of um, uh, what responsibility does a nation have to care for the warriors that they send to combat. Um, and, and this idea of the moral imperative to care for them when they return. And if that moral imperative is not fulfilled, that is a moral injury on behalf of the nation and the community is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, totally. So, you know, a person comes back from male or female comes back from operations. There may be a physical injury. There may be um, a traumatic injury. There may just be huge adjustment challenges of being away. Um, but let's say they are entitled to certain benefits, certain support. I hear enough about the VA and we know that in, in a lot of our countries, the organizations set up are complex organizations but I consistently hear about and the stories from veterans are how they are frustrated and stressed and depressed by the struggle and the futility of engaging in administrative processes where it just goes round and round while they come from highly functioning environments to working on the streets, homelessness, or financial impoverishment. That is a problem. We should not be leaving veterans in limbo when they return here. There is as, as much as there is an obligation for us working with veterans to understand the generation we are working with and how we need to adjust and adapt our modalities, there is also a responsibility on organizations that are here to support veterans to acknowledge where they are not working and do something about it. And, and I'm sure they're doing that. But we still know that there are problems and we know that there are problems because the people coming out of the territory Tell us about their frustrations. You know, and this definitely brings up another aspect. And you talked about moral injury um, being separate from post-traumatic stress disorder, right? This shame and this guilt. Um, but also yeah. there's a measure, and, and I've witnessed this, and, and you can definitely correct me if you don't see this in, in Australian veterans or experience this yourself, is that um, when we leave the military, we have to figure out how to meet our needs in new ways that we're not familiar with, right? When when Correct. I came Correct. to to um, my base in Colorado, the Army gave me a set of keys to housing. Here's the place where you're going to live and your family's going to stay. And when we decided yeah. to not live there, they gave us money to to purchase, you know, so – so all of these things as you're talking about is, is homelessness and joblessness, which is, you know, obviously not just limited to the veteran population. Um, yeah. but, but I had to figure out how to negotiate, you know, contracts and when I never had to do that before. And I was 42 years old when I left the military. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's very, in, in a colleague of mine, I've, I've spoken in a number yeah. of different times about this. It's hard to talk about your inner child when you don't know where your next meal is coming from. And so you're having ah, to deal exactly, with the, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly, and 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 that's where we need to get right back down to the basics. I mean, for me as well, when I've seen special force folk that I've worked with, 
who come out of highly capable environments. Where are they now? They're on the roads because they're doing manual work, trying to get a bit of money together. Why? You see, I think I'm wondering whether there needs to be more work prior to transitioning. And I know that there are transitioning processes, but I think there needs to be more work. And that work needs to probably have a more acute understanding of the layers of um, transitioning challenges that impact on individuals. Because I don't hear much being talked about, you know, when you leave, you're going to look at loss of tribe, change of identity. Maybe it's been done, and I, and I do stand to be corrected. But I don't hear the complexities being raised. There are extraordinary organizations, and even in your way, where a lot of really good work is being done. Um, but I think generally the understanding of the layers, and we need to understand those layers. Each layer is a bit of territory that needs to be explored. And they may very well be territories that guys are not too quick to talk about. As we talked about guilt, uh, loss of self, um, loss of tribe. How many veterans still say, geez, I miss belonging with my tribe. With my tribe, I had meaning. In civilian life, I feel lost and I feel displaced. We need to address that and all the factors that compound that. I, I absolutely agree. And in many ways, arguably, um, for yourself, as you work exclusively with military and veterans and I work with military and veterans, um, I have found how to reconnect with my tribe in post-military life because I talk to veterans yeah. all day long and I think about veterans and, and, and we, we talk about veteran mental health. And so in many ways, I, you know, I'm like that guy that's going back to the sports, uh, uh, going back to school after he graduated to, you know, play football or whatever. We yeah. continue because we we're connected. We feel a certain connection to this tribe. Um, Okay. And, and yes, it, and this is a choice of ours. I like to say that, that I've gone through the tunnel and now I'm going back into the tunnel to help my brothers and sisters yeah. out. Um, yes. but, but not everybody has that ability to remain as connected to the military, perhaps as you and I. No, they don't. And, and I think that's where it can become problematic. And that's where a real sense of displacement, um, can begin to haunt the individuals where they're sitting wondering where the hell do I belong? Now, you know, we know that the services for veterans are, are certainly a lot more sophisticated and present than they were 40 to 50 years ago. But as we were talking previously, I think for those of us working with veterans, we, you know, our language provides the bridge between connecting from a civilian psychologist to a military veteran. And I think we need to learn to use the language that helps us to connect and helps them to bridge into our worlds. It is not as simple as just sitting opposite someone and expecting them to cross into your world and all the modalities you use. You have to first earn the right. And I think part of that is learning to use the language. So, you know, when I, it took me many years before I started to figure this one out. Um, you know, the one is I, I use a lot of operational language. I talk about pull-throughs. You know, you need to do a pull-through every day. Every day when you return to civilian life, do a pull-through because if your barrel starts to collect residue, you're going to have a runaway gun, you're going to have an AD, you're going to have a stoppage. And those, I, the guys go, what do you mean? I go, well, you know, when you shoot your mouth off at work, when you shoot your mouth off at your wife, 
when you get to a place where you're out of control, where you're anger. I said, those are all ADs. Those are all stoppages. And they go, okay, now I begin to understand. And I talk about how do we move from your ambush territory? How do we diffuse the trip flare? How do we identify what your claimers are and where are they facing? How do we go from your ambush zone to your OP zone, where at least you can think and look and observe? So I use all this language and guys are going, ah, I understand. So part of what we need to do to help veterans transition is to provide a language to help them understand that the tools they use and the understandings they have can inform their integration and their healing in the civilian world. So as much as there is a responsibility for organizations working with veterans to understand veterans, so too with professionals, whether they're counselors, psychologists, social workers, it's time to understand their territory and the language that you need to use. No, I really appreciate that. And we were talking about this before we started recording the idea of um, we as the mental health professional community, we know what works, right? If, if a veteran Correct. comes into your office and my office with pure 100%, not complicated post-traumatic stress disorder, we know what to use to help that veteran process those memories and get beyond these, these trigger points. Same thing with yeah. addictions and, and in many ways emerging into now we know what works with moral injury and this lack of purpose and meaning, um, which is, Correct. you know, been around for, for many years, but, but somehow we lose the ability to translate that into language that is accessible to veterans. That's, that's what you were talking about. And that's the big thing I'm, I'm, I'm really on about nowadays is there, there is a language. I know when I spoke to the SEAL team organization, to, to Mike in America, they are already using the language. He was saying, well, everything you're using, we're using. So it's there. Now, we need to gather that, and it needs to be included in the training with anybody who thinks they want to work with veterans. I have seen situations where I had a veteran come to see me, and I said, you know, I believe you were seeing someone else, and he went, yep. And I said, so what happened? He said, I walked into the room. I sat down. The psychologist said to me, that's my chair. He said, I need to sit there. She, the, the individual said, no, you need to sit in this chair. He walked out the room. Why? Because we're not tracking that some of these individuals do need to face the door. So it's little things. And also, you know, when I used to talk about in the early days, well, guys, we're going to do some breathing and mindfulness-based stuff. It was like, you know, come on. You know, the 70s are long over. What breathing, you know, <laughs> mindful meditation. But when I talk about the territory of neuroscience, when I talk about the back of the brain being the ambush zone, the front of the brain being the OP zone, when I talk about, as I said to you, pull-throughs, when, when I start using their language, like, right, guys, you're in an ambush zone at the moment. Let's look at your protocols. What did you do when you were in ambush zones? When I've had guys who shoot their mouths off at their wives, I go, tell me, when you were in an operation, you're walking through a village, an old woman shoots her mouth off at you, do you react? They go, no, of course not. I go, so at home, you're with a civilian who's your wife and you react. How does that feel? And they go, oh, okay, I get it. So we need to bridge territories. Now, I don't accept that we need to be veterans to understand this language. You know, we, we, when we began studying, we were civilians. We, didn't, we weren't psychologists. We learned the language of psychology. We learned the language of healing and managing trauma. So why can we not learn the language that comes from the territory and include that? The second thing I think which is also important for me is in operations, we know that we have a number of tools at our disposal, and we will use them depending on the demands of the territory 
we're operating in at that point in time. So why are so many psychologists and professionals got a toolbox of one or two evidence-based modalities? Why? Are we going to squeeze every veteran into our one or two modalities when maybe they, they, when maybe they are not appropriate? And so part of our challenge is to begin to move well beyond what we come away with and have more tools in our toolbox. You know, a big change for me was reading the book, The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And, you know, I, I looked at a lot of those modalities and I went spot on. Now, some of them may not be evidence-based. Well, you know, the evidence-based way of operating many years ago was to get out the trench in the long line and move forward. It doesn't work. And so why are we not, why are we still stuck when there are so many things that might not have had the finances to reach evidence-based um, recognition, but if they do no harm and if there's enough evidence already to show that they impact well, why can we not learn to use those as well? So, you know, operations is thinking beyond the square. Working with veterans demands we think beyond the square as well because what we do needs to fit and who we are needs to fit. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and again, as you, um, yes, the evidence-based practices, if they're needed and if they're required, then absolutely we use them. Um, Completely, if that's the case. Yeah. Um, but this yeah. idea of trauma is trauma is trauma. And we hear this kind of thing is that, well, PTSD in, in a, a combat PTSD is similar to, neurologically is similar to, you know, uh, vehicle accidents or things like that. Uh, but the other yeah. things that you're talking about, this loss of identity and the moral injury and the things we tell ourselves and, and learning how to make, you know, meet new needs in old ways, all of these, all of these things, um, impact us and make veteran mental health uniquely different than, say, someone who's suffering from PTSD from a single vehicle accident. Completely. And if you think about it, a number of numbers of people I'm sitting with at the moment are not presenting with issues from operations. Numbers of the special force guys go, I don't have a problem with what I did. They've integrated. But what they do have is the problem around loss of tribe, the things you've just mentioned, identity, guilt, grief. Grief's another big one, major. Um, almost every veteran I've sat with, underlying it, the deepest part of themselves is grief. Grief about loss of who they were, even grief about mates that were lost. Not trauma, not trauma, but grief. Now, we need to get to those. We need to create room for those to come up and, be, and acknowledge them, which means we need to be attuned to the possibility that the person sitting off opposite us may not ne just necessarily be coping with PTSD or trauma. In fact, it may not even exist. But there, as you said, there are still a number of more subtle factors that are upregulating and in themselves are quite traumatic because of displacement or a lot of emotion that's sitting under the surface. Now, and, and to validate that, from my point of view, um, of the number of veterans that I'm seeing or have seen over the past five years, um, not all of them are dealing with PTSD because we know it's not ubiquitous. It's, you know, in the no. high end, it's, it's 30%, they say or so. Um, but every single veteran that I have worked with or nearly a hundred percent as close to be as, as, uh, as could be 
are struggling with the loss of purpose and meaning in their post-military life, right? How do I find yes. something in my life that was as yes. meaningful to me? Um, and we have this yes. entire branch of psychology called existentialism that can help us, yes. um, uh, you know, yeah. help these veterans find something in their post-military life like that. Correct. And I think the you, you're spot on. I mean, we need to support veterans to find meaning. We do. Um, because that meaning is not just going to be handed over. It is too, there's too much of a gap between the operational territory and the civilian territory. The things that need to be built in slowly. Now, you know, I, I would imagine there's not enough time to do all of this prior to transitioning. And I mean, you know, the other thing that I've also seen as a bit of a sideline is when the transitioning is not chosen, but it may be a medical discharge. It may be a special force um, individual who has sustained an injury and before he knows it, he's out of his organization and his family, there's no doorway anymore for numbers of these. There is another moral injury, which is abandonment by tribe. Even if, even if it's a logical process, it still feels like an abandonment. And I've dealt with numbers of um, special force individuals who feel such a sense of being abandoned and cast out. And that's another one that we need to look at. It's complex. You know, we need to, we need to have a 360 degree view on the person sitting opposite us and not go with the first thing that's given to us because there is stuff skulking in the corners that are not necessarily going to come up straight away. Of course, this is a, this is an audio podcast, so listeners can't see me nodding to just about everything that you're saying, because it's it's exactly what we're seeing. Is is when I retired after 22 years, I planned it right. I I knew the yeah. the final date that I was, you know. So I had the, you know, again, if if we talk about sort of the the mental health um, uh, terminology, yeah. the stages of change model, I was already in the the action stage. But if somebody is abruptly removed from the military, um, we see it a lot with administrative discharge, behavioral discharges and things yes. like that. And, yes. in, and in many double ways, um, the betrayal or the abandonment. Um, but, but exactly that, a, um, a, a veteran who thinks in, in here in the U.S., a 20 year career and they're at year 14 and all of a sudden they say, Oh, you don't get those last six years. You need to leave now. Whether they're ready to change or not, they're out the door. You're out the door. Correct. And even when your time is up and you've had a very good career, you may have spent 30 years doing what you do and then you're out the door, that doorway can be hugely encountering. It's, it's why I call it the next operational zone because in any operational zone, we need to have an understanding of the territory. We need to map it out. We need to have goals. We need to know where we're moving. We need to know our areas of risk. It's the same rules. The rules of engagement apply in operations as they do in civilian life. So, don't know. It's a it's a challenge. It is, and, and I appreciate. And, and going back to something you said earlier, I wanted to touch on this because it it uh, applies to your book. You said that one of the things when you're talking about using operational languages. Um, a veteran has to figure out which way their claymore is facing, which that's actually yeah. the name of your book. Which way is your claymore facing? Uh, an operational <laughs> manual for veterans. And, and, and so it's, and, and while I saw it and I was like, that's it. That's spot on. Much like, you know, the response yeah. to headspace and timing for, for our 50 cal. Um, yes. but, but I, but I get an impression that, you know, 
Is your Claymore facing now that you're out towards those that you're supposed to support? Is your Claymore facing the right way? I'd like to hear a little bit more on on why you chose that title and the meaning behind it. Um, I think for that book, um, I realized what came to me at that point, and because uh, in, the, initially the book was it was just going to be for um, the Rhodesian Bush War veterans because a group of us formed an organization. And the book was going to be a fundraiser and also a way for me to get to more Rhodesian vets around the world because I, I do I support guys from my war at no cost. But there's a limit because my hours are quite long during the day. So the book started from there. And every time I try to write it, I just went, I can't do this. It's too much. I, I don't have time. But eventually, I got to a point where I collected so much material, I realized it had applicability to everyone. And the thing that came to me is, what is the issue I'm looking at at that point in time was veterans are either destructive to those around them, and so their claymore is facing out, and their claymore could be their children and their wives, which was a lot of the presenting issues, um, or and or it was also destructive to them as well. And, and destructive can also be quite subtle. It's things like putting on weight, losing fitness, you know, losing a sense of capability, the impact of marriages that are falling apart, children that are not connecting with their fathers. So the concept of the claim will seem to encapsulate um, what I wanted in that book. However, the progression from that book, I then put that book on Amazon because they, they had a publishing company called Create Space, which doesn't exist anymore. But then I realized that I didn't want what I was doing to come at any cost. And even if I could bring the book down to and the Kindle down to 90 cents, it was still a cost. So then I started saying, I, I made a scanned copy, and I've been sending hundreds of those out to organizations and individuals. But then I realized it was no longer as simple as which way is your claymore facing. And what came to me for the second book was which way is your warrior facing. That felt to now encapsulate more of the journey forward, that the um, Claymore one was very much based on a trauma-based, damage-based model, whereas I wanted something which was more positive and looking forward. And that's so the second book, um, because of the, look, the, the, the scanned copy is a, is a, is a, it's, it's not exactly a great copy as most scanned things are. So I decided to include the first book, but in this, in the second book, but in the second book, also talk a lot more about the complexities on transitioning. It's also got a lot more visuals. So it's less of a book you can stick in your back pocket, but more a book, I guess, to a large extent, yours with all the amazing um, tools and insights and strategies and understandings in yours. So it's more a book that a guy would sit down and read or a woman would sit down and read. And it's more a book which is positive because it's which way is your warrior facing? Because you need to look back to bring your warrior forward but you also need to look forward, not back, um, as you progress. So I like that concept more. And that will be available. I just, my wife's got to have a proofread because she doesn't trust my editing. And um, it'll go up on the website, uh, my website, as a free PDF to be downloaded. And I think that more captures the essence of um, what I want, which is not so much Claymore-based, but more which way are you looking. No, I, I appreciate that as you were talking. And of course, those of us who served, we know that the, uh, the Claymore is a, is a, not just an anti-personnel mind, but it's, it's this got a curved face and on the face it says yeah. front towards enemy, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and if I am, 
And if I am out of the military and I am setting up the Claymore to aim towards my family, I'm setting them up as the enemy. Or if I have the Claymore facing myself, I'm setting myself up as the enemy. And so even as you were talking, I would say it's it's not which way is my Claymore facing, but how do I remove the Claymore? How do I get rid of that and instead have the warrior facing with my family at its back and so I'm defending instead of attacking? Is that Absolutely, you put it absolutely perfectly. I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> yeah, you may, by all, really, by all really, means, it is. Uh, but I it really is. like the way you put that. And and I really appreciate I, again, and and definitely, I, I say this almost every time, but I think that we could probably talk for hours um, on this yeah, subject could. because, and I really do. I I got the sense as you and I were communicating before, um, but there is a universality to these issues. Um, as you said, you know, uh, mud smells like mud and blood smells like blood. Um, that the, the lessons that you're learning and that you're applying in Australia, the same ones that we can apply in the UK and Germany and and Japan and Vietnam, I mean, in, in anywhere in which, um, warriors return to their communities. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, If people wanted to reach out more, of course, get the book when it comes out. Um, How can they find you? Maybe online, social media. Um, So I'm on LinkedIn. So if they go to my website, um, www.barrybarrywarrestine.com, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. They can connect with me on Instagram. And there's also a Facebook author group. They can connect with me. Um, LinkedIn, I really love LinkedIn. Um, I I will make notifications as soon as the book's available. From the website, guys can message me, and I'm happy to have a conversation. I never charge. There will never, ever be a charge for anything I do outside of the organizations that I contract in. So I'm always happy to have conversations. And in fact, numbers of folk from America have come through and and we've had a conversation. I can't do counseling at such a distance, but there's certainly a lot that I can listen and offer from my own experience. So yeah, I'm available on all those modalities. Um, It's also possible to Skype me. They can connect on Skype. They can connect on WhatsApp. There's Zoom. Um, There's all these modalities. I'm around. And I'll make sure to uh, to get all of that contact uh, contact information on the show notes. Barry, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, and thank you so much, really, for taking the time and um, making the time to chat to me. And both ways, mate, it goes both ways. Thank you for what you've done and what you've written. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. It's always great to hear another perspective on veteran mental health, especially if the experiences of veterans in other countries matches our own. Even though the veterans that Barry works with are generationally, geographically, culturally, and experientially different from the veterans I work with, the similarities are astounding. Barry's true to his word. He's more than happy to talk to anybody who reaches out to him. Make sure to find his information in the show notes and mention that you heard about him from this podcast. He'll get a kick out of that, and so will I. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST134. If you want to show the support for the work that we're doing, make sure to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. 
You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. I am a therapist, but I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss it. Until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.